Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, Today we are in the book of Luke. If you recall, we've been working through Luke and we're in chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. This is the second week week of Lent. Um, And so this is, uh, to me, it seems a little out of place. I have to be honest. So I'm going to have Alan kind of put this in the context a little bit for us. um, So maybe we understand why it's here. Yeah, it, it and you know what? Uh, to be honest with you, I've probably avoided preaching on this passage for a long time because it is kind of out of place. Well, and it's very short compared yeah. to many of the of yeah. the collections that they have for the Revised Common Lectionary. So, right, it it does make it a little daunting, I think, when you don't have a ton of material in front sure. of your face. Right, mm-hmm. I, I do think though um, that what we're dealing with here is is kind of um, a, an extra passion prediction in Luke's Gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it sounds, the the language of it sounds strange to our ears. There's so much about it that just seems off or weird. It's Mm -hmm. not what we're used to hearing. But I think there are several themes in this passage that connect with the way Luke narrates his story of Jesus' life. And Mm -hmm. particularly important are the themes related to Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and his future coming in power and glory. We've seen that already, that there's in several places we've seen that those those themes are very important mm-hmm. for Luke. So uh, um, it, it actually makes some sense that we're dealing with this here. Okay. Um, it's, it's sometimes known as the journey to Jerusalem, and yet this seems quite early on when you think about it in terms of maybe uh, Math- Matthew's gospel. Right, right. So, yeah, this whole section of Luke's gospel is known as the journey to Jerusalem, and it begins with the notice shortly after the transfiguration narrative, actually, mm-hmm. in Luke nine fifty one, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so that begins mm-hmm. this long narrative that continues for nearly 10 chapters wow. until Luke enters, I mean, until Jesus enters Jerusalem in Luke 19, mm-hmm. 28 through 44. Now, um, again, we might, we probably shouldn't be surprised that Luke has a long uh, travel narrative in the midst of his gospel, because we have this long journey to Rome on the part of Paul in the book of Acts. That seems right. to be a motif. And right. j- travel narratives were kind of a literary genre in of the course. ancient world. Mm-hmm. So so um, uh, we shouldn't be surprised at that point. But what we find in the journey to Jerusalem is that this, this section of Luke's gospel not only recounts many episodes of Jesus' ministry, but also, and I think this is the real point, a great deal of Jesus' teachings. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, um, Joel Green in his Luke commentary sees this, the whole point of this travel narrative as it's all about discipleship. It's mm-hmm. all about training the disciples. It's a little bit like uh, Luke's version of the uh, the uh, the discourses, the farewell discourses in John's gospel after John 13, where Jesus is having right. sort of this uh, private mm-hmm. session with his disciples and teaching them uh, more in depth about what it's going to mean to follow him. And and that's that's really kind of what's going on here is that we have we have this collection of teaching material in this mm-hmm. journey narrative. Many of the sayings collected in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount 
uh-huh. are found okay. in this section of Luke's gospel, along with some 15 parables that are only oh, found in Luke's beloved, gospel. Beloved, right? We love those parables. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, they, they include some of the most familiar of Jesus' mm-hmm. parables, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the widow and the unjust judge, and the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yes, all of these parables that we know so well are only found in Luke's, Luke's gospel. gospel. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, so what what happens on this journey? Well, the along themes? the way, <laughs> Jesus stays with friends. He stays with Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. He heals people who are suffering. He debates with Pharisees and scribes, but mostly he teaches. Mm-hmm. And the themes of the parables in this section carry on with the edgy feel that we've already encountered with Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. The great reversal is is a common theme in some of these parables. The coming crisis that you know is going to basically reverse the situation where those who think that they're, you know, in a, in a comfortable position, maybe even vis-a-vis God, are going to find out not so. The cost of discipleship and warnings, particularly against the dangers of wealth and to some extent against the influence of the wealthy Jewish religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that edgy feel is really going to be magnified in, in some of the teachings materials that we're going to discover. At, once we get past Pentecost, we're going to get back into that material. And, and uh, as we move through the rest of, the, of this uh, liturgical year, we're going to see these things. Well, I think today's scripture itself is pretty edgy. Sure. And sure. Um, maybe that's part of setting the stage for absolutely. this? Absolutely. I mean, okay. yeah, absolutely. L- Luke is an edgy gospel. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I don't know if, I don't know if you are, are not reading it in its entirety, if you always pick up on that, if you will. Well, and, and that's, I think even when we do read just Luke, I think we're so schooled by Matthew and Mar- Matthew especially, mm-hmm. that we we tend to even we, we we're reading Luke, but we're hearing Matthew. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so right. Um. You know. Unfortunately, we're we're not comfortable hearing Jesus with an edge. Right. You know. It makes me wonder how the story was told orally. You know, as mm-hmm. people just heard it prior to the Gospels and what Jesus looked like in their minds. Did they, were the orally, did they have visions of more of Matthew or did they have oral did they have visions of more of what Luke? I actually think an edgy Jesus would have made a lot more sense in the early church because those folks so lived too. on, they lived much more on the edge. They right, were not, right. you know, living the comfortable um, status quo lives that that's we live. That's true. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about today's passage specifically? Yeah, so it, it begins with Luke's report that at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And of course, already right off the bat, that seems strange to hear that. I mean, why would Pharisees be warning Jesus that Herod wants to kill him? It seems very, I mean, obviously he had made enough attention, right? That that mm -hmm. they even knew who he was. So I think that's interesting. But yeah, why Wow. Right. Because we, we, assume, we, we assume that the Pharisees would have also wanted to kill Jesus. Right. The Pharisees right. were Jesus' opponents. But we have to remember that the Pharisees were not all united in their opposition against Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was invited to dine in the home That's of true. a Pharisee not once, but three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
although the events that ensued at each of these dinners either offended the Pharisees or involved Jesus of the criticism involved Jesus criticism of the Pharisees or both. Nevertheless, I mean, the fact that he was invited to dinner, to dine with a Pharisee, that's that's huge because the boundaries around meals and who you share a meal with in the Jewish world were a big part of one's mm-hmm. identity and big part of one's practice of piety. Now, Alan, remind us, were those did Jesus dine with the Pharisees in, in, in narrative prior to this story or after? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so one in Luke chapter 7, okay. there's one in Luke chapter 11, and then there's one in the right right after this. So really a reminder by Luke that he is in this kind of dialogue with the Pharisees yes, all the time, indeed. and not, not that they are, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're the bad guys warning you, but the, rather people that he's in in conversation with. And we're, yes, and we're going to see, I think, that, that Luke's gospel doesn't um, prejudge how that conversation is going to come out with every Pharisee. I think Luke's gospel leaves it open that some Pharisees may um, mm-hmm. hear the message and respond accordingly. And I think that's fair to who, who Luke is when he's mm-hmm. talking about all these people that um, are part of, of God's kingdom. And so he's not saying, and these Pharisees are obviously awful and they're not involved, but r- rather they also um, can be redeemed. Just well, and later in Acts, we're going we're gonna to hear of a group mm-hmm. of disciples who right. had been Pharisees. Right, right. right? So very so, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned before, I think the reason why there was so much friction between Jesus and the Pharisees is because among the Jewish sects at that time, Jesus had the most in common with the Pharisees, although we know there were significant differences. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that there were Pharisees that who were sympathetic to Jesus only makes sense because of these commonalities. And in fact, the gospel tradition specifically names two of them, Joseph of Arimathea mm-hmm. and Nicodemus. Uh, Luke tells us that Joseph was a member of the council who did not agree with their condemnation of Jesus and asked for right. the body of Jesus so that he could bury it. And that's in Luke 23. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, Luke tells us that Joseph was waiting expectantly for the kingdom right. of God, which I think would have marked him as a Pharisee. Sadducees weren't, didn't have any kind of expectation like that. Right. So then, if furthermore, in John's account, both Joseph and Nicodemus bury Jesus' body right, in, right. in John chapter 19. And, and of course, in, in, the, um, in the narrative uh, in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus right. by night, he's a specifically identified as a Pharisee. So we right. know two Pharisees by name who were sympathetic mm-hmm, to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're moving on with this. Um, what happens next in our narrative? Well, I will say... Uh, that there is some irony in that the Pharisees who were apparently sympathetic to Jesus would come and warn him at that very hour. And Luke, I think, is puts that in there on purpose, at that very hour. Mm-hmm. Because in Luke's narrative, just prior to this, Jesus had been teaching about the exclusion of some from the kingdom of God who may have assumed that they belonged, and about the fact that some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And so there's there's a kind of a judgment kind of theme that is set up here, and we're going to see this not necessarily directed to the Pharisees specifically. We're going to see this directed more toward the Jewish people mm-hmm. as a whole. Um. Let's learn more about Herod, um, you know, because I guess automatically we assume Herod is a bad guy, but, right. but how does Luke set him up here? Really, in Luke's gospel, Herod plays a very small role, 
And, and so where do we get the bad guy connotation? Where does that from come from? The from? other gospels. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, Herod, especially Mark. Mark really gives Herod the most, I guess, um, airtime, if you want to put it that way, um, of all. He really magnifies Herod's role in in what he what happened with John the Baptist, and sort of sets right. him up as this threat to Jesus. You know, it's occurring to me here, and that our our, our listeners may not know which Herod we're talking about. We're talking right about now. Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee. Okay. Yeah. And not King not Herod the Great. King Herod the Great. No, so make sure Herod that we Antipas. know the difference. It's easy when you're just talking about Herod to maybe not understand. And Herod Antipas was a client king of Rome, which meant he was basically a puppet. He right. had no power, really. Right, and, right. And he, he was just basically filling a role for the Romans. Yeah. Now, you know... That Herod Antipas had a specific intention to kill Jesus is not found anywhere else in the gospel tradition. Herod was concerned about Herod, (laughs) and though the story of his execution of John the Baptist, which Luke only alludes to, Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to Matthew and Mark, does point him out as a potentially dangerous man, the only other mention of Herod is in that same passage uh, in Luke 9, where Luke reports that Herod was perplexed mm-hmm. by Jesus and tried to see him. So it seems like Herod was more curious about right. Jesus than anything. Well, honestly, it, at this point, why is Herod even concerned about Jesus? Right, right. right. I well, mean, I think really when you, when you talk about fear, that's, that's really the thing. I, I think Herod was a, was a man you know, beset by fear. Yeah, he, he yeah. had no power of his own, and he was afraid of for his own position constantly. Yeah, yeah, you know? true, and, true. And that was that was his that was his weakness. So, uh, you know, the one place that Herod kind of plays a role in Luke's gospel is later when uh, Luke indicates that Herod and Pilate became friends when Jesus was crucified, and so then in Acts, you know, Luke again tells us that when the disciples were praying for boldness in the face of opposition, they associate Herod with Pilate in opposing and killing mm-hmm, Jesus. You mm-hmm. know, in our day, we just assume, we assume that's, that's Pontius Pilate. Right, right. But in, in Acts, when, they, when they're praying for boldness in the face of opposition, they associate Herod with Pilate as both sort of having equal parts in, yeah, in, the, in yeah. the, the killing of Jesus. You know, um, I really think, though, that, that the, real, the real situation here is that Herod was powerless as a ruler, mm-hmm. and, and he's grasping at straws, you know, trying to, trying to hold on to whatever power he can. can. You know, as, as I'm looking and thinking about this, um, it seems like we are still, because of, of Luke's treatment of Herod, which is really quite small, but we're seeing it again through those eyes of Matthew and Mark yeah, again. Yeah, so it's yeah. one of those other places where Luke is really playing down his role mm-hmm, comparatively. Yeah. Um, so keep going. Um, yeah, so Luke continues by reporting that Jesus answered them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. That's Luke 13, I absolutely love this passage i, I <laughs> do just do yeah i don't know first of all i'm amused by the go yeah. tell that fox for me it's it sounds uh, well it's, it's like, obvious that jesus is not afraid of herod exactly right <laughs> go, go tell him go tell him because i'm doing real work here and right. this is how i read it and it's yeah, not as good yeah. but i think but, that's right yeah I yeah you know right. it's like i'm doing real work here um for this saving of souls and 
he's after well he so knows much. he's he's doing god's work exactly exactly and he's he's bothering me and this is i don't have time for this and i i, I don't even see it as herod's bothering me i think he's just kind of brushing it aside yeah. as a as a non-issue okay, yeah. there you go yeah. there you go and and the third day i finished my work and it's almost like i'll deal with this on the third day Leave me alone. <laughs> right anyway, that's right. how i read it and that's right. not necessarily good uh, reading right right <laughs> Well, we'll get into today, tomorrow, and the third day, but I do want to mention the part about the fox. Uh, the term alopex does mean fox, um, and in this case, the Bauerank Gingrich Donker lexicon suggests the idea of crafty, mm-hmm. while Lowe and Nida, in their um, um, uh, dictionary of, of Greek terms according to semantic domains, suggest the idea of someone who is cunning and treacherous. And, you know, there was a time when the image of a fox held just naturally held that idea of cunning and treacherous but i don't think i don't think that's the way we i don't think that's what we hear when we hear him hear jesus mm-hmm. say go tell mm-hmm. that fox for me uh, there are some occurrences in the septuagint where the reference is especially negative and it's and this word uh, alopex is rendered jackal uh per, for example, Ezekiel thirteen mm-hmm. four, your prophets have been like jackals among ruins. Mm-hmm. It's the same Greek word in the Septuagint. And so I think because we've sort of lost the negative connotations for the word fox that were intended in, in, mm. in Luke's day, I would buck the unanimous, and I'm rolling my eyes when I say unanimous, English Bible tradition, and advocate right. that jackal works better here. I didn't find a single English Bible transi- translation that, that, de- that departed from fox. Uh, they all say fox. Again, because we have the precedent in the Septuagint where this word is translated jackal, I, I, I'm really surprised that nobody in the English Bible tra- tradition has, 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 changed has, has changed it. Yeah, yeah. I may be out on a limb here, but I, I really think it's justified in terms of, you know, again, translation needs to needs to reflect the intent of the passage right. in the current culture. Current culture. Now, um, you know, Jesus summarizes his ministry in a rather strange way. I am casting out demons and performing cures. Um, And there are references in the gospel tradition to Jesus exercising a ministry of both casting out demons and curing the sick. Mm -hmm. But it's more common that the gospel tradition reports that he did one or Mm -hmm. the other. Mm -hmm. And the reports of Jesus' healings are far more common than the exorcisms. Now, the the vocabulary for healing is unique here as well. Um, I am uh, casting out demons and performing healings. Uh, RSV says performing cures. Um, I would probably translate it performing healings. Hmm. Uh, and it's iasais apotelo. Uh, the, the much more commonly used term is therapeuo, mm-hmm. even in Luke's gospel. Even in Luke's gospel, huh. when, when Luke reports a healing miracle, he uses therapeuo. Um, uh, but again, for some reason, this particular passage has some unique vocabulary to it. Hmm. And um, um, is it because of a different source, or do you think Luke is being particularly specially choosing special language? I think it could be either one. I think it could be a unique source, or it could be that Luke is composing here mm-hmm. and and composing using different language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, this is also unusual, I think, because elsewhere the synoptic gospel tradition, Jesus rejects a ministry of performing miraculous signs. And even in Luke's gospel, he talks about, you know, I will only, the only sign I will give to this, you know, this generation is the sign of Jonah, you know, which basically says in three days I will be raised from the dead. 
And yet, I think we do have to keep in mind that the Synoptic Gospels, no less than John, with his emphasis on the signs that Jesus does, consistently emphasize Jesus' authority, as in Mark's Gospel, or power, as in Luke's Gospel, to heal and to overcome all the powers of evil. So it's, you know, um, perhaps this is an appropriate uh, summation, maybe on the part of Luke, maybe on the part of Luke's source, of Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. even because he did perform uh, exorcisms and he did perform healings, um, but you know we we have to remember that he was what his focus was about the year of the Lord's favor and bringing in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and the justice mm-hmm. of God's kingdom, and, and it's and and in Luke's gospel it's all about release. So both of these I, ideas fit within that Lucan yeah. concept of release. Well, and I. <laughs> And maybe again, I'm going too far, but it seems too to make sense within this context where he's talking about uh, today, tomorrow, and a third day. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it kind of ties all, in all he does with mm-hmm. this kind of passion prediction. You Surely, know what I mean? Absolutely. It, 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 it's almost like a little mini summary or something. Absolutely. I, I, maybe. Well, and and again, that's the la- that language and some there's some other language, but that language particularly is what makes me think of this as kind of an extra passion mm-hmm. prediction mm-hmm. in Luke's gospel. Um, that today and tomorrow and on the third day I finish my work. Mm-hmm. That's a very that's a unique statement. It's yeah. not found anywhere else in the gospel tradition. And even in the next verse, he says something very similar. Today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way. That those phrases. I mean, I, I you know in my logo software I looked up. You can you can highlight you know today and tomorrow, mm-hmm. and I looked up those two words together. And these are the. This is the only wow. place where those two words take place wow. you know, occur together so in the New Testament. Like a, it's almost like a. It's a. It's, it's almost a, like a, a highlight of the text. It's, it's like supposed to grab our attention. Mm, it is. I think mm, it is. Mm, I think it is. Interesting. And you know, I would I would see this as an expansion of on the of the on the third day theme that is found throughout the gospel tradition and especially in Jesus' right. passion predictions. But again, this particular language, today and tomorrow and on the third day, or today and tomorrow and on the next day, is only found in this text. Well, and we're headed to Jerusalem, right? Yep. This is that this is that turning point. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a really, really cool a mm-hmm. little, it little is. thing that it we is. might overlook. It is. And I happen to love it, and I don't know why, but it, yeah. it, it calls to me. So. Yes, indeed. Because to me, I think it's another way for Luke to allude to the cross and the resurrection as the conclusion of Jesus' mm-hmm. ministry. And and so, you know, the Pharisees come to him and say, Herod's going to kill you. You better get away mm-hmm. from here. And and Jesus is like, you know what? <laughs> You can you can you can tell him whatever you want to because I am committed to fulfilling God's purpose and right, wait right. wait till you see what happens on the third day. It, it, it's it sort kinda, of an illusion here. Yeah, right? it kind of makes sense too when you're talking about you know, Jesus away from Jerusalem, kind of finding in finding his identity and the mm. transfiguration, and then the and this is who I it, it there's just a lot there I think in 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 telling us who Jesus is, is and now. He's headed towards Jerusalem, yep. Jerusalem to yep. fulfill that. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's very yeah. cool. It is indeed. Uh, now, the other link with the passion predictions comes with um, the divine necessity behind Jesus' actions. Okay. We saw mm-hmm. when we were looking at the passion predictions in Mark's gospel, the little Greek word die, mm-hmm. delta epsilon iota, is a impersonal verb indicating necessity, and um, I think. The vast majority of New Testament scholars would agree that the necessity behind Jesus doing this is 
that this is God's will. This is God's purpose, and right. He must fulfill. He He knows that He must fulfill this. Right. But there's also the, a link with the Passion prediction in that He says it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. because Jesus specifically mentions Jerusalem in the third Passion prediction, which will actually come mm-hmm. later. And so there's there's there are all these kind of connections with the Passion predictions, um, and and this whole idea of a prophet being killed in Jerusalem is um, uh, pretty pretty uh, um, also strong um, clue that that's what Jesus is talking about mm-hmm. here. So again, the friendly Pharisees warn Jesus about a possible threat from Herod, but Jesus basically tells them he will not be deterred from carrying right, out God's right. purpose. And he has to go to Jerusalem to do it. Yeah. 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 And so kind of this sense and also the, the warning of the warning of the Pharisees um, to Jesus is not deterred. And, and because, yeah, I have to go to Jerusalem to carry this out. I mean, this all fits together, mm. right? So then the, then this leads us into Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And Luke 13, 34, and 35 are almost word for word the mm. same as Matthew 23, 37-39. 49 out of 56 words in Matthew's version match Luke. Mm. And, in the, and they're in the same order. They're all in the same wow. order. Interesting. So this is another passage in Matthew and Luke that strongly suggests a written source for some of Jesus' sayings. Now, on the other hand, Matthew's version of the lament is found at the end of the chapter on woes against the Jewish leaders, mm-hmm. which is right in the middle of Jesus' debates with the Jewish leaders once he gets to Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. Jesus is already in Jerusalem when he utters this lament. Um, in Luke's gospel... You know, Jesus is not anywhere near Jerusalem, according to Luke's narrative. So it might seem a bit strange that Luke includes the passage here. I think in both cases, the placement of the lament seems to be connected with the notion of killing the prophets. Because in, in Matthew, Jesus winds up his woes against the religious leaders by saying, you know, you build the shrines to the, to the prophets and say, we, if we had been there, we would not have killed our these prophets, but you're, you're doing the same thing that they did. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he, you know, so Jesus is on the theme of prophets being killed in Jerusalem and Matthew as well. So there seems to be a connection in the gospel tradition between prophets being killed in Jerusalem and this lament over Jerusalem. And so Luke therefore connects uh, the lament with the idea mm-hmm. that Jesus has said it, it is impossible for a prophet to be killed mm-hmm. outside of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So basically, in contrast to the Pharisees' warning about Herod, Jesus is aware that the real threat comes from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and under their influence, the Jewish people themselves. Mm, okay. Okay. Right. So then Jesus laments, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired mm-hmm. to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, that whole statement is just word for word, almost the same word for word, mm. you know, to the extent of vocabulary, to the extent of word order in Matthew. You know, and it would, this whole Jerusalem piece here, I, it's, it's definitely an impassioned place. It is. And, uh, you know, a place that, 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 that uh, provokes strong feelings and, and can provoke conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some who would interpret this statement as anti-Semitic, but I think that's the wrong frame for mm-hmm. what's going on here because Jesus is a Jewish teacher right. 
who is following the path of Jewish prophets before him. And this whole theme of, of a wayward Jerusalem is a common one right. to the Jewish prophets, prophets. of the uh-huh, Hebrew Bible. Uh-huh. You know, despite God's repeated attempts to influence his wayward people to return to him that they might thrive, they rejected and even killed the prophets that were sent as God's agents of restoration. So we're talking about inter-Jewish dialogue here, inter-Jewish controversy, not someone coming from the outside and, and engaging in anti-Semitic mm-hmm. behavior. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it, unfortunately, these days, people are so kind of almost hypersensitized to it that any kind of, anything that can be potentially taken as negative towards right. the Jewish right. people in general is, 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 is branded as anti-Semitism. Right. I think what's going on here is just the, the, the awareness that there were some, not all, but some, the, the many of the Jewish religious leaders were, were um, violently opposed to Jesus, and, and that influenced the people. It's not that the people were evil. It's right. not that the Jewish people were evil in and of themselves. It's that, you know, there were some, there were some powerful people who were in right. control of the right. Jewish religious in, in structure, basically, who were able to influence that structure and were able to influence the people. That, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. sociologically, that makes right. sense. So and then, you know, we have this, this, this image of this, um, of this kind of Jerusalem that kills prophets. But then we have this, oh, but uh, the the whole hen gathers a brood under her wings, this kind of beautiful imagery of this kind of, oh, if only you could be protected and, and, and safe here. So you get this, this wonderful juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I, I think that's reflected in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Because, yes, because you know, on the one hand, the prophets will just rail against the people of Jerusalem. Right. For for the injustices, you know, for the mm-hmm. for their for their rather casual sense of they can live their lives however they please, thank you very much, and expect that right. that somehow God's going to protect them from calamities, from the consequences of their actions coming down upon them, and and you know, yet at the same time, these same prophets can express this just deep pathos of God's yearning for his people to come back so that he might bless them and they might thrive. He might protect them and provide for them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's something that you find very much so in the prophets. And, um, you know, the, 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 the phrase itself, uh, a hen gathering her brood under her wings is a unique one in, mm-hmm. in the biblical tradition. In the Hebrew Bible, there is a similar idea expressed in the notion that God brought the people out of Egypt on eagle's mm-hmm. wings mm-hmm. in Exodus 19.6, and he bore the people through the wilderness as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young in Deuteronomy 32.11. Mm-hmm. Of course, one might well, object to the comparison between an eagle and a hen, but I think the protective action of gathering young under the wings is something that's probably characteristic mm-hmm. of birds in general. Right. And furthermore, the idea of taking refuge under the shadow of your wings is a yeah. phrase that is used frequently in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps Jesus here is using the language with reference to this sort of protective language of of under the shadow of your wings with reference to a hen or young, because it would have been a common image mm-hmm. to the people of that day. Um, and so um, heading next then, um, um, what, what happens, what happens next? Well, you know, this whole tradition of the wayward people and the prophets trying to call them back, 
back. Um, basically, what happens again and again is that the people were not willing to heed God's prophets, and they were warned again and again that if they continued in the path of abandoning God's ways, God would eventually abandon them to the desolation that was the consequence of their actions. And so the illusion of your house is left to you, and Matthew adds, your house is left desolate to you, mm -hmm. is to Jeremiah 22, 5, mm -hmm. which refers to the desolation of this house or the house of the king of Judah in the context. And in the context of Jeremiah 22, it's a designation mm -hmm. for the city of Jerusalem. Now, in, in Jeremiah, we also see the prophet addresses a similar warning regarding the house of the Lord, the temple. Uh -huh. They right. place their confidence in the fact that the temple is right. located among them, and they think that, well, the temple is here, and so God's going to protect us no matter what we do. And, you know, Jeremiah just really rakes them and says, no, sorry, that's not going to happen. And so I think Jesus' reference here, again, kind of reflects that prophetic mm -hmm. um, uh, theme. And the reference to your house in that light probably has more than one connotation. Right. The temple. Right. You know, God abandons the temple and thus right. as a symbol of abandoning his people. Right. But also Jerusalem. Right. And then the people themselves. Right. right. So yeah. that's all connected together. That makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then um, almost at the end, there's almost an apocalyptic kind of saying. Yeah, yeah. You will not see me until mm -hmm. the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's Luke 13, 35, quoting Psalm 118, 26. Now, you know, it could be apocalyptic. Right. I would say eschatological probably myself. Okay. Um, and, you know, yet at the same time, this was the greeting that all four gospels place on the lips of the cheering crowds when Jesus made mm -hmm. his triumphal entry That's to Jerusalem. That's true. true. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Some form of that is in all four Gospels. I would not say that they, that, that is the implication of this passage. I would not say that Jesus is saying, you know, your house is be left to you until I come to Jerusalem. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying something beyond that. And, and you know, the idea behind you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I think it refers to his death and therefore points forward to his final coming in power and glory. And so, again, we see the themes mm -hmm. of the death and implicitly the resurrection. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the today today and tomorrow and on the next day or today and tomorrow and on the third day. Mm -hmm. that The third day is, is a, I think, a clear pointer to the resurrection. And then this, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, points to his final coming. So death, resurrection, and coming in power and glory mm -hmm. are what this passage is about. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's just you know, it's like we're in the middle of this teaching section where mm -hmm. Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And it's one more reminder that Jesus right. knows wherever he speaks. Right. Because he is himself embarked on a journey that is going to cost right. him his life. Yeah, yeah. So in, in a way, this is a, a, a centerpiece kind of thing. It, it, it helps us focus who mm -hmm. Jesus is and where he's going. And it helps us. It helps us take the edginess very seriously in a new kind of way, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really cool passage, and yet, as, as you said, we don't we tend to not really pay attention to it. We do, mm -hmm. yeah. So, well, I'm going to talk about a little bit um, Jerusalem because, which is going to seem like a strange choice, but I'll explain that why I chose that and and um, a little bit. Thanks, Christy. Thanks.
Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to let Christy um, lead us through some insights into how the Reformers understood this passage. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm not talking too much about the kind of exegesis of the passage they did, because I think what you're going to find more helpful is the role of Jerusalem. And I think, you know, in, in the modern world today, we think, oh, great city, great heritage, um, center of Christianity and Islam and Judaism, but we don't, I don't think we really fully understand the depth of Jerusalem well, like they did in the ancient world. And we, I think we've, we, we really hit on that today of how Jesus um, and how the Jews saw Jerusalem. It's, it's this really the heart of, well, that's where God was in the sure. temple. Sure. Um, but, and then to understand that, you know, this is going to be destroyed. The city's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. People flee all over. And then the kind of longing for it. Yes, and of indeed. course they can tie back to um, the, we get the Babylonian captivity and that mm-hmm. destruction. That so it's part of this kind of lore. But by the time you hit the the Reformation, Jerusalem has yet a different a different experience. And I think to understand how reformers might have looked at this passage would might give us a sense of come from a little bit on how they understood the city of Jerusalem. So let me tell you a little about the history that would have impacted Jerusalem at the time. Um. um the um, I think first, um, just to, just to reflect on the centrality of Jerusalem in Luke. Now we we kind of have already talked about yes, that indeed. today, but you know just to remind ourselves. Look, you know, um, he's you know basically born in the city of David, circumcised at the temple, preached at the age of twelve. Right, um, the, the restore the restoration of the. David's kingdom, right? The devil tempts Jesus to throw himself off the highest point of, from the temple. Um, the uh, the the um, Jesus himself replaces the sacrificial role of the temple at Jerusalem, right? Jesus is the, the sacrifice, and um, um, then Luke. Well, actually, the apostles return to Jerusalem, so Jerusalem is much more center. And 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 we just talked about it comes early in the gospel that mm-hmm. we have the journey to Jerusalem, this centrality. So, yeah, and it, it's you know it's there is this movement that Jesus, you know, at, at this at this point, Jesus, everything is moving toward Jerusalem in Jesus' ministry, right. and and then there's sort of this interesting. Um, movement in Acts that everything moves f- from there exactly. to the ends of the world, but then for Paul to accomplish his mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the world, he has to go back to Jerusalem yeah. <laughs> to get sent to Rome. Right, <laughs> so, right. So, yeah. Jerusalem really does play a central role right. in Luke, much more so even than the other gospels. What's important for our reformers is they really can't get to Jerusalem. Mm, And so uh, let me take you back a little bit. So during the Middle Ages, actually, uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem were very much encouraged. They were part of the early church. But remember, what we often call the Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages, there's actually going to be this Muslim uh, conquest of Jerusalem. what was Rome, and yeah. it, and they they take over northern Africa. They move all the way up into Spain, and they're also going to take over uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so you've got this kind of process then by which it's harder and harder to get there. Mm-hmm. And now there was quite a bit of okayness with Christians coming to Jerusalem, at least um, 
at least in the in, in the early Middle Ages. But once the Turks took over, they weren't so kindly at it. So, let, let me ask you this question. Because, yeah. uh, you know, I know that today people go to Jerusalem, people go to the Holy Land because they want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. What was the motivation in the Middle Ages for people going, making these pilgrimages well, to Jerusalem? I mean, it very much reflected the kind of... Um, um, the kind of relic kind of, of uh-huh. worship that there was. I mean, there was actually uh, there was actually religious power there, power of the Holy uh-huh. Spirit to heal if you made these kind of pilgrimages. Uh-huh. And so pilgrimages were popular all over. Over so Europe. perhaps you might go to Jerusalem to seek some special dispensation of absolutely, grace or absolutely. something, you know, like that. Yeah. People went there to die. I wow. mean, so and during the Crusades, of course, the idea of the Crusades, we, we always talk about them, but the idea of the Crusades was then to recapture the Holy Land from the infidel Muslim. And, <laughs> right. and, and, and of course, it was this big call, but, and we often think about it, it, right now, a lot of the, the discussion is in terms of, oh, these were just people wanting loot and booty. But mm-hmm. there really was a religious call to it, which be, because the centrality of Jerusalem to the faith and the place of Jerusalem was still very important. Sure. The, 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 the physical place had, if you will, a godliness about it, even though... They well, and perhaps they even believed there was some special spiritual power absolutely. associated with that place. You know, and so in a Jewish tradition, that's God was housed in a temple. Right, right. Well, God's not housed there in the same sense, but there's still a sense of God's special favors there. If I could mm-hmm. only... And, and we see this in Roman Catholic tradition. There's holy water. Mm-hmm. If you could get it from the River Jordan, it's holier wow. Wow. than if... Or if it's blessed and indeed... Pilgrimages going, pilgrimages were going all over the place, mm-hmm. and sometimes because of relics. Well, in right, Jerusalem is the ultimate relic, right? And so when the Crusades came, so so ten ninety five, Pope Urban the second calls for a crusade to take the Holy Land back. And when they do initially, the first one is actually the most successful of the Crusades. There's four we usually talk about, although there were others that were not successful. And this idea of crusade will continue actually through the early modern period. This, mm. the, even during the Reformation, there's still this thought of, oh, crusade, recapture this holy land. Mm. So it's still kind of in the imagination of there, there's some significance to having um, access to Jerusalem. Um, so it's still part of the kind of the Christian um, ideal. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, um, so they, the, this idea, and they, they were fairly successful. What's interesting and what, all we hear about, oh, the, 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 the destruction, but they also build churches. They restore churches that had been taken over. They take over the, the dome um, and they, they turn it into a church. Um, and so they really try to build a Christian culture there for pilgrims. Yeah. And then most people know um, as it's still somewhat dangerous to go. I mean, now you've got, the whole time here, you've got mixes of, of Christians and Muslims kind of battling out. It's not the safest place to go. Um, but they tried to make it safe. And of course, we all know about the Knights Templar being born um, to protect Christians on their on their route to Jerusalem. And that's kind of what their role became. Well, all these people going, some going to die, some arriving there penniless because they've used all their life savings to get there. Mm. And so one of the other things that Templars do, which is really interesting, is they start the first hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so you get these, you get this kind of care for Christians, not only protection, but care for Christians who are on the way. 
Um, so this is kind of an interesting space. But ultimately, <laughs> despite of all these um, um, crusading efforts, ultimately the air territory is going to be um, taken over by these, these Turks. Mm-hmm. And the Turks aren't as kindly to allowing Christians to come there. And um, that causes a new problem. So um, the major event for Western Europe was the defeat of Constantinople in 1453. Sure. Now, that was... Eastern Christianity, right. but they still saw them as kind of Christian brothers and had some protection to allow the kind of the Roman tradition in. But well, as today, I mean, that area of the world is sort of connected with Europe. It's sort of not Europe, but it sort of is Europe. Mm-hmm, you know, exactly. and so it, it's it's the, you know it's like it's like the borderland of Europe. And and right. if they could take Constantinople, they could invade Europe itself. Absolutely, yeah. and Constantinople was considered to be impenetrable, mm-hmm. um, and that it had this fantastically build walled city that, yeah. that nobody could could defeat and yeah. they did yeah and so that put europe on edge sure and of course in a lot of the reformation stuff that i've studied and a lot of the literature and a lot of the there was a great great fear sure. of islam and to that extent this continues to move on and they continue to take more and more land including um the the Turks will take over the the Holy Land as well. So they really expand their empire. Um, And the idea of really getting to Jerusalem pretty much disappears. Mm -hmm. And so our reformers don't go there. They it's only becomes kind of part of their imagination. Well, and and I guess it would be it would be just impossible for them to go to Jerusalem because yeah. there was just simply no way there's to get no there. There's no way to get there's no way to get there safely. Yeah. Um, now there are a few scholars that there, there are some there are some brave people that that will take this pill, but 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 not our reformers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the greater as I said, as as Reformation period expands, this this Tur- these Turks they're they're an enemy of a different kind. I mean, um, they're often tied up in 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 just being the devil, you mm, know. Um, yeah. And of course, they lay siege to Vienna in 1529. Right. So that's right at their feet. You know, yeah. this is this is right there. Right. Um, and so I think what's interesting is about this for our reformers. It becomes just kind of part of this this kind of mystical background and, and how do you, um, how do you make sense of it? And I think what happens, and I think, I think the, the Reformation theology begins to make a, a shift in how they look at Jerusalem. And I think it fits, it, it fits together. So this kind of idea that this has some kind of um, spiritual presence in Jerusalem disappears just as it does with the relics um, and with any anything physical, but that God's presence is within the within the, the physical people mm-hmm. the, and the body of Christ that way, and so uh, you get this idea of a new mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Yep. Yep. Now, <laughs> I say, that, and of course, we read that too in the in in some of the the Revelation texts, New Jerusalem. Right. But I think it actually um, becomes part of the utopian vision for that we see within kind of the, the what's the ideal christian space that can that can be can we make this on earth and so there's attempts to create these kind of perfect christian communities these new jerusalems and um 
our radicals, of course, get involved with this particularly. But I would say Calvin's Geneva also had that same kind of sense of this is where the true church is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be physically located there because this is the new Jerusalem. It's not, God isn't just present there. And and so... um, just to have some fun with this, the Anabaptists, the city of Münster was, was particularly um, known for this. And um, they, they set up this... this notorious, I notorious, would say. Notorious, <laughs> right? And, and this, this, this city um, that was the city of God for only the truly faithful. And of course, it ended up being under Jan van Leiden, this kind of... This kind of uh, police state (laughs) (laughs) where you know they were really putting their own people to death for any kind of infraction they didn't think and godly infraction and they were also a great threat i think i've mentioned them before to the magisterial reformers and so they eventually you know invaded the city and Mm -hmm. um and got severely um uh, let's just say they they it was a violent killed. repression. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oppression of, of them. And yeah. uh, so one example. Now, Calvin's Geneva fared much better because he was still going to play along with, with magistrates and with right. with traditional you know, kind of views of respecting magistrates. But um, nonetheless, there was still a sense of this kind of New Jerusalem sense in Geneva as well, you know, this kind of perfect uh, Christian society. So... Um, an interesting shift. Well, it's amazing, you know, what has happened in the history of the church, especially since the Reformation, in the name of this perfect Christian society. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, I, I went ahead and looked up a couple additional things. And for Luther, um, um, the New Jerusalem was literally just the Reformation process of rebuilding the church and the principles uh, under the principles of faith alone. So, if you will, the priesthood of all believers made the structure of the New Jerusalem, um, where, where all that gave uh, only gave lip service to Christ, but acted as neighbors to one another. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I had pulled out um, this New Jerusalem concept in, in Luther, and I, I went to uh, Roland Baton's Bait, um, biography on Luther, the most famous one. It's quite old now, but yet everyone still goes back to it as kind of the quintessential biography. And he pulls out. Um, this woodcut from Luther's Bible um, on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And um, it's, it's, it's the, the traditional kind of 16th century woodcut that we would expect, actually quite beautifully done. But what's interesting, and I probably needed Baton to tell me this, was instead of rebuilding what we know the temple looked like, it's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It's Saxony. Right. It's, it's where Luther's from. And I think that could have been a city in Germany. <laughs> exactly. But I think what's really interesting is this is this kind of takeaway from the actual city of Jerusalem to this actual where God is present, where God is working now. And I think it's a really interesting shift. It's, a, it's instead of the centrality of the city of Jerusalem, which Luther had never seen. Mm-hmm. And neither had anyone else in Germany. Right. You know? So right. Right. Uh, what an interesting... Um, what an interesting shift. Um, then Calvin, and, and Calvin, Calvin, I didn't find as much talking about as, as much, but I think for Calvin, um, it really has to, to do with his change in his understanding. You know, Luther, even though Luther saw a change in the church and rejected the Roman Catholic um, 
theology, he still didn't really have a good solution for polity in the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he removed it from Rome, but it came under the magistrates, but it still was kind of a top-down system, right. a bishop-oriented system. Calvin is like, if this is really going to work, um, we can't even have a top-down system in any way, shape, or form, but we actually have to have a bottom-up system. We have to have the believers, uh, the priests of all believers, be also the ones to run and guide the church. So the new Jerusalem has an, a, a new a new shift as well about has a, a new organizational structure, a, a new structure, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's it's not there's a whole a whole new sense for him. Um, so the church doesn't emanate from a, a, a place; it, it emanates from God at the center, and God then reaching out to all these people. Um, so, and he actually goes so far. So in Calvin, um, where in the Roman Catholic Church, you might have said, well, the new Jerusalem is Rome, sure. right? And that's, it's from Rome. And, and of course, this was it. The, the, Jesus gave Peter the keys. Right. You know, Peter then centers in Rome. Then Rome Rome becomes the center of the church. It's the Jerusalem. It It's it's where the God's soul is, if right. you will. And... Um, Calvin is like, look, this doesn't even make sense. And he says the papacy is directly contrary to church order. Mm. So Jerusalem is not there. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem is where indeed the elect are. Right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so ultimately, I think, I think the Reformation, it's an important shift away from the holiness ascribed to the place of Jerusalem and a more abstract idea of the people as a center of Christ. And while being together is important, it is not tied to a location um, which has itself some type of holiness like the Roman Catholics would do. And, and of course, but we see this in all of their theology, mm-hmm. right? The, the presence of, of God in the, in the sacraments, right? This presence of, of God in holy water, in relics. That is something completely got, gotten rid of, including a holy city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time it trickles down to us, Jerusalem's a, 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 a relic, of an old, and that's probably the wrong word. It's a, it's just a cool old city, it's but a place. it doesn't have necessarily the center. It, it would be nice if we could go there, but it's not essential to our faith mm-hmm. in the same way it was like in the Middle Ages. Sure, yeah. Um, so, um, um, anyway, I, I think now if you read that passage, thinking about how maybe the reformers saw Jerusalem. Um, they understood it differently, and um, I think it—I I think it really reflects Jesus then, as and 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 his role and his role in 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 dying on the cross, um, and then cr- the creating of the church from that. I mean that mm-hmm. in a different way. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We are back, and we're um, talking about really thinking about this passage within the context of Luke and and its significance. And we had mentioned it in the in the sections that we had that this is kind of a a, a refocusing to keep us on track for Jesus's ultimate purpose. And um, I think it's it's central not only for the scripture for the reader, but I, I think it also has some call on our lives as well. I mean. Uh, the work that we're doing um, as Christians and our focus towards that um, 
towards that that end, towards that goal, I guess. Surely. Um, not so much in terms of what we do. Of course, that would not be good theology, but um, just in terms of... In terms of discipleship. Discipleship, yeah. 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 You know, um, I'm going to tell a story on myself here. Um, like many of our listeners, you know, I've been through some experiences that were rather painful, not only in life, but also in the church. <laughs> um, had to leave um, my academic career behind because of conscience uh, back in 1998 um, and um, went through a forced termination based on some false allegations. Um, that's just some of the things, mm-hmm. some of the painful things I've been through, you know, in, in connected with my service to the church. And, you know, uh, honestly, you know, one of the one of the thoughts that has crossed my mind is, okay, yeah, Jesus went through a lot, but it was only for about a year, not 20, 30, or 40 mm-hmm. years, <laughs> which, you know, I feel embarrassed to even compare my experience with Jesus, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's a very human, it's a very human thing. I think for me, for anyone to think, you know, discipleship is hard and, and it continues to be hard. And sometimes it gets harder as you go. And to me, this is the, this is the theme of the journey to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And I like the way you phrased it, that this has a, this, this passage has a refocusing effect because I can almost see, you know, it's like, the disciples maybe their eyes are glazing over because mm-hmm. Jesus is really laying it on in terms of the man and the cost of mm-hmm. discipleship and what it's going to cost them to follow him, and it's like they're 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 losing focus of how can you expect us to do all of this? Right. You know, it's it's too much, and and so this brings us back to right. well, look, I'm the one who is going to go to Jerusalem. I'm the one who is going to die on the cross, mm-hmm. but that's not going to be the end for me. I'm going right. to be raised to new life. And you know what? At, at some point in the future, I'm also going to return in power and glory. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm going to go through, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to practice what I preach here. I'm going to go through a very painful experience in Jerusalem mm-hmm. that's, going to, that's going to be used by God in wondrous ways. And I think I think there's sort of an implication there for us in our discipleship that you know, yeah, discipleship costs us. But you know, we're we're, we're doing this for the sake of the body of Christ. We're doing this for the sake of the people of God. We're doing this for the sake of God accomplishing his purpose in this in this world. And and you know, it it's may cost us. Yes, it may cost us in this life, but you know, we can rejoice in that, you know, we, hopefully we can follow with a similar kind of resolution that mm-hmm. Jesus had to fulfill God's purpose in our lives. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, it, absolutely. I, I think your experience is, is like so many of ours, you know, as our, as we go on in our lives and it's, it's, it's easy to get distracted um, by everything else. And I, I keep, I keep this labor. It's, it's sometimes hard to keep the joy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, oh, yes, it is. You know what I mean? And, and, and I was thinking about just, I was thinking about Luke, actually, as you were talking and thinking about Luke put, laying this out for us. And I think, I think it reflects our lives as Christians and we get really excited with the, the birth narratives. They're mm-hmm. exciting and they're happy and they're joyous. And we get it caught up with the baby. Um, and, you know, at the end of our lives, we get drawn near to God and take, but, but we get tired in between and, mm-hmm. um, it just, it seems long and we wonder why, and we get distracted by other things and we get pulled away from God. And it just, it, this, this recentered, recentered us too. And yes. I went back to my passage today and I was thinking today, tomorrow and the third day, I mean, that kind of the, 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 the labor of Christ with us yeah. that we're that the sacrifice that we're called to do and so yeah i i think that's the message that we can preach with this this text yeah, yeah. Um, this this promise that's there in it mm-hmm. yeah and and you know you you mentioned the fact that you know you you weren't sure why but that there was something that kind of about this that drew you in mm-hmm. and, and i think to me it. I, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but one of the things that I really love about this passage, having you know done the study for, in preparation for our podcast, is um, that it's it's almost reassuring. You know, Jesus knows he's going to die. To die, he's not worried about Herod. He's not worried about any of that. He knows he's going to die, but he also has the confidence that death is not his death is not going to be the end. Right. It's not going to be right. the final word. Right. He's going to be raised to new life on the third day. But then he also, in this passage, he also is aware that he is going to return in right. power and glory. Right, right, right. And, and that that's all part of God's purpose mm-hmm. for him. Right, right. And, and so to me, I think, I think just the fact that, you know, the, the pain, the cost of discipleship is not all there is. Right. There is something that God is going to do through us. There is something that right. God is going right. to accomplish. There's going to be a good outcome. And, and, you know, the thought occurs to me, I mean, the writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and if we can keep in mind that the joy set before us, that what we do right. is we, as we seek to fulfill God's purpose for our lives is to, is to, is to promote the kingdom of God, is, right. to, is to bring about the release of the year of the Lord's favor. Right, right. And, and yeah, it may cost us, but it's going to, it, the joy set before us is, is that it's going to bring the, right. the, the kingdom of God right, into people's right. lives. Yeah, yeah. And I agree. And I think it, I think it also keeps us from being kind of, I, I, I work with a lot of people who have given up on life, mm-hmm. you know, as some of them are, are aging and they don't, they don't feel that they have a purpose left. And to me, it's like, Jesus is not wasting his time here. I am <laughs> right. casting out demons and performing cures today, tomorrow. And then on the third day, I finish my work. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminds me in, in God's time that we, that we are always called to have Christ in our lives and to guide us in what we're doing and not to sit back and wait, right? Um, but, but to always be in that space as we're called to be into that space of, of, of caring for others and, 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 and being present for others. Yeah. 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 Well, and 
You know, when you when you talk about that, I think of uh, our mutual friend Charlene, who's a member of my church. She mm-hmm. she recently mm-hmm. was uh, recognized as the Giles Outstanding Homesteader in this presbytery, and um, you know she's in her mid eighties, mm-hmm. and she is such a dynamic disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. She is, and, and and she is she is behind most of the mission endeavor, most of the community service that this mm-hmm. church does. Now, there's some other people who are also behind some other endeavors, but you know, Charlene is just this dynamic mm-hmm. Christian witness in her mid 80s. I mm-hmm. hope and pray that I have the same kind of commitment and the same kind of joy and the same mm-hmm. kind of of um, just a servant attitude, right? Uh, when I'm right. in my mid eighties, you know, me too. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah, me too. And I hope, I, I mean, I guess I hope that people hear this passage <laughs> with that hope. Yeah. You, know, that I it, think you might really see it as a have. downer, right? Yeah. I think, you know, on the first read here, it's a downer and that I'm so attracted to, and I, I think this is why, I mean, this is just like, oh, but I love this verse. And I think this is why, because I think there's really a lot of hope in this there is. actually. Well, and it, again, you know, yeah, Jesus knows he's moving toward the cross, but he also knows that death is not the end. Yeah. It's not the final word. That's he knows right. that God's purpose, God's kingdom purpose, which is all about the release of the year of the Lord's favor is going to be the final word. Mm-hmm. And, and one day he's going to return in power and glory to complete that yeah. work. Yeah. And and so, you know, it does give us that sense of hope and renewed joy that, okay, maybe, you know, trying to serve in any way, shape, or form in a church, whether you're serving as an elder or a Sunday school teacher or in any way, shape, or form as a mm-hmm. pastor during a pandemic is brutal. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, I'm going to say it right, say, use that word for it. It is brutal. brutal. Yeah, it is brutal it is. for everyone. And, and it is a joy killer and it is, a, it is draining and, and we're all weary of it. But, you know, we do it with the hope that, that God is accomplishing something bigger through yep. what we are, what we are absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that here as we hopefully move out of this, that we'll be able to reflect on what all that has been. So. Surely. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.